Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Reset with me, Sam Delaney, a podcast about mental health, but without all the bollocks. This week's guest is the actor Jason Fleming. Jason first became famous in the 90s, starring in Geezers with Guns classic, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Since then, he has been prolific, a very popular face on the big and the small screen featuring dozens of movies from British indies like I Give It A Year to Hollywood blockbusters like X-Men First Class and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I met Jason recently when he invited me onto his podcast which is called More Than My Past. It's a show that focuses on life after addiction or incarceration. He's worked with prisoners for over 30 years helping them find ways out of the cycles of crime, mental illness and addiction. Jason is so passionate and thoughtful about these issues and very open to things that have affected him over the years, particularly growing up around alcoholism. He's great fun to talk to as well. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Jason Fleming, welcome to The Reset. Hi, mate. How you doing? Very well indeed. Thanks ever so much for taking the time to chat to me today, mate. Um, Listen, it's a pleasure. It gets me out of homeschooling. Yeah, exactly. That's a big sort of source. I mean, that's very relevant, actually, to the topic of this podcast, mental health, because, I mean, this whole stuff, this whole thing with, you know, the, the intensity of having your kids at home and homeschooling them and dealing with that on top of all the other day-to-day stuff you have to deal with. I mean, it, it does take its toll, doesn't it? I mean, you know, we're used to having nine till three, you know, to be relatively mm. selfish, especially if you're self-employed, you know. Yeah, you've got that time. You just got to get them there, and then you got to pick them up. And the bit in between, you can, you know, work out what you're going to do with your life. But now, I mean, it's mental. I mean, I think we've, you know, the whole thing about homeschooling and about being a dad, you know, because what you want to do and what I want to do is be a better dad than my dad. Well, mm. my dad never did any of this stuff, so mm. I don't know how to sort of judge it. I don't know how to um, excel at being 
a dad who homeschools. I just don't get it. So, so James, I um, uh, appeared on your podcast um, a, a couple of weeks ago, which was really enjoyable, which is called More Than My Past. So I thought I'd start by asking you how that came about, why it's important to you. Oh, that's nice. Thank you, mate, for mentioning it. Um, so, yeah, I, I've, um, I grew up in South London and um, had a very clear, from a very young age, had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do which was to become an actor. And for whatever reason, every single time I put the graft in or attempt to do something, even at the smallest level, it kind of, you know, like when I fancied Alice Oovery at primary school and she was playing Dorothy, I thought, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll audition to be the, 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 uh, the scarecrow because he snogs, he snogs Dorothy. And, and so I auditioned for the scarecrow and got it. And then right. obviously she ran off with the Tin Man, which broke my heart at age 11. But the point being is that I've, I've always had a modicum of success at that. And it's always like step by step allowed me to do what I wanted to do. And I realized very young that to have that drive and to have that desire was an incredible key into happiness and um, direction. And to not have any direction or support was, was a very negative thing. And I so basically, long story short, I started to realize that a few of my mates went down the wrong paths. And then that ended up in a few of them being incarcerated at a quite young age. And I always was fascinated by that and fascinated by how easy that is. And I think a little bit to do with like my feeling of karmic kind of retribution that like if you've been lucky, you need to give something back. So I started quite early on working in the Nick and um, doing plays that toured prisons. This is like right at the beginning of my career. So we did all the like Cat A prisons. And uh, so this was probably my first professional job. And we were touring all the prisons. We were at Durham and this, um, it was the Changeling. And I was with Stevie Waddington and he's in the Changeling. I, there were two brothers and I get killed and I was getting strangled. And I was like, <laughs> and this voice goes, takes longer than that. So that was, oh my all God. So that was all going on and I was like, wow, this place is for real. These are real pillars. And this is, you know, this oh. is literally the bottom of the barrel. This is where, you know, people come at the very, when they've really, really messed up. And that whole process sort of, I found fascinating. And I also found it quite amazing that they were there for so long and that it was, you know, if you mess up like that, like the, there was the, an Irish geezer there and he was like, for the last hour and a half of my life sentence, I was free. I was like, oh mate, that's wicked. Thank you so much. And then the the screw went. He's the he's the uh, the Brighton bomber who killed all those Tory MPs. And wow. And I was like, oh, and I, so that that whole experience of empathy for people who've done horrendous things, mm. I've always been fascinated by. You know, like none of us are the sum of our worst of our worst decision. You know, and um, and that's what the podcast is about. It's about people who've turned that around. You know, there's Erwin James who was a double murderer who spent 22 years in Nick and now is a Guardian, writes for the Guardian and he, and he runs this um, newspaper called um, Inside Times, which is a newspaper for prisoners. Mm. So I've always found that amazing that, you know, last chances or second chances have always been something I've been really interested in. So really that's where that came from. And a lot of it is to do with people who are in that circle of addiction, uh, incarceration, release, re-addiction, re-incarceration. And that circle is a is one that's really hard to break and a lot of people do break it i've got nothing but um admiration for yeah i mean i suppose it's because you know 
when when you go through recovery as well guilt and shame are the two things that yeah. probably get mentioned the most right and on some level or another we all carry that a little bit and if it gets out of hand it, it is a vicious circle even if you you know even if your decisions haven't been as extreme as some of these prisoners that that you've helped you know you, you make a mistake you you run for refuge when the when the feelings of guilt and shame overwhelm you with, with drugs and alcohol and then drugs and alcohol only inflate your feeling of of um of shame and guilt and it just goes on and on doesn't it and i you, suppose you that's spoke what... about that you spoke about that very um eloquently about that thing about you know even at the most bait we're talking about being dads but even the most basic level when we go you wake up in the morning you're like how the hell did i get so messed up when i've got these two beautiful children mm. thank god thank god nothing happened thank god that they didn't need me to run them to hospital because i couldn't even run a bath yeah and that guilt that terrible guilt in the mornings of going i can't believe i did that to myself and to them and and then you'd think that exasperation would would lead you to going right that is it you know and then you do what we all do is you pour the whiskey down the sink you take the cigarettes that you've given up and you pour water on them and you throw them in the bin and you pour water on them so you can't smoke them mm. and then it then a day will go past and it starts again because you're so you're so pressured and you're feeling so guilty and you're not dealing with um dealing with being a father or dealing with the pressures that that brings you know you're not letting yourself off the hook or giving yourself the love you need in order to to do what you need to do as a dad what about you in that sort of thing though like you mentioned you know that your your dad was a drinker so yeah. you obviously had experience growing up of addiction what what's your relationship been like with with drink and stuff have you is it your childhood experience that's helped you stay away from you know problematic habits i don't think i have stayed away from problematic habits but what i've managed to do is um is like a positive distortion of uh of my situation in this that's a very good expression actually i'll use that mm. like so what i've done is my old man was a massive drinker my grandparents were drinkers and my mum even though she's still alive and luckily she won't listen to this podcast she's you know she i haven't had a drink for weeks well i've just emptied your bin mum and there's a bottle of scotch at the bottom of it so you've not emptied the bin for weeks oh you're very clever you're very clever <laughs> <laughs> so all, that, all that goes on but, yeah. but with dad I just it was almost like even though he was very ill with drink and he did he did have periods of sobriety and um which is you know amazing and he did really well but um it was almost like in it was the norm you know like and we you know good night kisses always smelt of whiskey dad was not present at all you know he disappeared because the pressure got too much for him and like we're talking about being you know the people listening to this you're talking about trying to be a dad well a lot of dads just disappear you know they just go and even though it's hard for us as dads to imagine how you can do that you know I, I understand it you know I understand why they did that but basically with dad because there was a lot of drink involved it was very normal drink was around me constantly um but it managed to become like the 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 um, angel on my shoulder, you know, like if we go out, like we were talking about during the eighties and nineties, when it was very, very debauched and our lifestyles were incredibly hedonistic. Every time the morning came and everyone was like, I got to have a bloody Mary, I'm dying. I'd go, cause of dad, I'd go, no mate, you suffer it now. You've had, your, you've had your fun. Mm. You feel like shit. Now you're going to feel like shit all day. And the only way you're going to, this is by going and having a run or training. You're mm. not having a bloody Mary. 
so it felt like in a way dad's alcoholism protected me because it meant I knew where it could go and I was protected from it because of my fear of it because I'd seen you know I'd seen dad lying on the floor in the kitchen of a of a restaurant and the waiter coming up to me and my brother who were like you know nine and 11 and go excuse me is there anyone we could phone because your father's asleep on the kitchen floor in the restaurant and we'd be like oh right okay well we better phone mum and then mum wouldn't pick it up and we'd end up getting dad up and even driving us home you know? wow wow so, yeah it was you know and I remember going around um I remember going around uh Tippett's Corner roundabout and my brother who was 11 having to take the wheel of the car and pull the wheel of the car so we took the right exit because dad was too drunk to get off the roundabout you know and wow. so the reality of it was very much part of my, my upbringing and um i think it protected me to a degree that's um that's really that must be quite traumatic i mean is it one of those things you don't realize at the time because when you're a kid things like that are so normalized even but, now it seems normal it's only when really? i see your reaction or you know and I don't really tell that stuff I've not told that story mm. to anyone in fact my brother will probably be cross I've told it but but people you know that was the way we grew up you know we grew mm. up going leaving the house and mum or dad going right where's the car right yeah because no one would have a clue where the car was because when we came home last night everyone was off their nut you know yeah yeah so yeah. and that to a degree you know that this wasn't the 80s this this was not our drinking days this was mm. sort of uh, 70s early or... 70s yeah mm. i mean it's pretty normal it was pretty normal for people to be that messed up and god no wonder you know and you i remember growing up and mum you know by then mum and dad had divorced and dad was gone um but mum would get like four cans of long life um and you know she'd give them to gareth gareth was probably 12 and that would be his little thing and i'd be like oh wow he's got beer you know because it was the weekend yeah. and he had four little cans of long life and in a way i think mum was trying to normalize drinking which was probably the right thing to do it's like you know the french putting water in wine and giving it to their kids you know so mm. they're drinking at an early age and we'll get on to this i'm sure we've you and me have spoken to four about how how you negotiate the alcohol and your children and how you know you know how you do that and you said to me just be honest you know and be clear but it's difficult because we were drinking from 12 you know yeah relatively yeah. little but we were drinking from 12 so it just increases increases and and now like you said how did i avoid i don't think i have avoided it i just managed it well you know i've managed it well i'm like the, i'll be the last one to go you know screaming into recovery but without trivializing recovery i think you've said to me before and a lot of people who are in recovery have said to me you know if you if you the reason to be in recovery is because you are constantly messing up and embarrassed mm. and ashamed you know and, and that's a good signal to, to that you've got a problem and yeah I've avoid that so far um yeah i suppose you know so having the example a lot of people slip into problem drinking because you drink and you're unaware it's so commonplace drinking mm. and alcohol and it so surrounds us and the messaging about alcohol and how benign it is surrounds us on every single tv show movie advertisement we see right yeah uh, i always think of things like um really nice tame sitcoms like the good life right i always think of jerry coming home and everyone in a sitcom in those days when we were kids had a cut class decanter with scotch in it didn't yeah. they right yeah. and the first thing a, a bloke did when he came in the door in any sitcom was pour himself quite a large whiskey a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sip it and would act in this way like, I mean, you've probably done this. You do that kind of sigh of relief when you take a sip of whiskey, right? And it's, it's you bloody actors. You make it look so nice, Jason. You <laughs> said it so well. And you think, look at that. Look at poor old Jerry out of the good life, right? He's had a hard day in the office. He's absolutely exhausted. He's had a long commute home. But look, as soon as he takes that first sweet sip of whiskey, he feels absolutely great. It I takes mean, they a... do it. On, they do it. They did it on in the in Sweeney and everywhere. There's always oh, a yeah. of whiskey in the drawer, and I just don't. I mean, that's why. Luckily, whiskey was never the thing because of Dad. Um, uh, but I can't believe that they do that. I cannot believe that. And you know, you look at um, Mad Men or any of those shows set in the fifties and sixties, seventies, and they're always drinking whiskey, all of them. Yeah, and I know stop. that if you have two whiskeys. You're kind of slurring, you know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, so but you're basically saying it's normal to be half cut. Yeah, I mean, it was so, it's presented, and still to this day, I feel that alcohol has is presented as utterly benign yeah. in most ways, right? It's just so, it's, it's every single day, you know, it's like considered an everyday normal thing that everyone yeah. does. Yeah. And I think that, therefore, a lot of people just stumble blindly into problem drinking as they get older and uh, and to bring that back to you, you because most people haven't seen from an early age up mm-hmm. close the uglier darker side of it yeah i think so so I it is an advantage isn't it in some in a perverse way that yeah. is that is one advantage to what what you grew up with and i think i think um having historic alcohol is alcoholism in your family um it does feel that, you know, and I think you've probably discussed it. I've never talked about this, but it does feel that there's a genetic. This is a really stupid way to compare it, but I took, I've got a rabid dog who's from Romania, who is feral basically. And, and, and for two generations, it's um, Indy's parents and grandparents were both stray dogs in Romania. And so when I take my dog out, my dog has no idea about like coming back or not barking at people or having the odd nip, nip of loads of nips of other dogs, like other right. dogs of the enemy. And yeah. that, and she's literally like a wild dog. And we've got a geezer across the road whose dogs literally runs and gets the ball, sits down, doesn't go on a lead, walks with him. I'm like, flip. I mean, and it is because that dog has a genetic understanding of behaving in a certain way. And I think with booze, it's slightly mm. similar. It's like, all I've seen like is Christmas and with, with the more than my past podcast, I know this cause I've, cause you know, that descent into um, incarceration usually starts with a lack of love and a chaotic anarchic upbringing, which almost definitely will involve booze and drugs. And it's like, 
the dog or me, it's like all I've seen is that chaos and the booze and the grandparents and the, the desire for everyone to get off their nut. And then the ramifications of that, whether they be fighting or car crashes or the police arriving or whatever mm. they are, that's the world. That's the chaotic world mm. of uh, my ancestry. And um, I think that is what you're used to. And if you don't grow up with that, if you don't grow up with seeing that, then you don't necessarily have an understanding of where it can go. But also, sorry to, to go on, but also I do think there's some sort of... Um, normalization of that behavior which means it's you, like you just said about slipping into it because it's sort of normal you know it's sort mm. of it's okay mm. and it's not it's not okay you, you mentioned the 90s and mm. you know that sort of the laddism culture and uh i guess brick pop and all the other things that yeah. that surrounded that you know both of us i suppose were complicit in selling that lifestyle you no know, you know what though we grew up in a you know you know without taking blame of us as much as i grew up with that um, anarchic lifestyle of, well, viewing that anarchic family lifestyle of alcohol. I also grew up under Thatcher, mm. you know, where your job title and your income were what was important, you know, not your mental health or yeah. your enjoyment of what you did or, you know, the amount of free time it was going to give you. You know, it wasn't about that. It was about a label about I am, you know, and I spent, Mate, this is i mean i know you're interviewing me but i feel self-conscious talking about myself a lot but I mean, no that's what you're here to do mate like it or not <laughs> <laughs> but you know i grew up wanting to be a success and i i um equated that success with being like jude law and ewan mcgregor and those boys mm. and i and i by the way i was bloody lucky to act at all but i was always looking at them going bloody hell look they're doing it and yeah and i just want a bit i just want a bit of that and i just want to I want people to look at me and go, wow, Jason's doing well. And Jason's got the right jacket. Sean Pert, we always had the right gear. And I'd always go yeah. up to him and look at his label behind his, oh, Sean, <laughs> let me see. And then I go off and try and get a cheap version of it or whatever. <laughs> you know, I was desperate for approval and desperate for yeah. to be part of the gang. And I think what that period of time was, Thatcher taught us that we had to work, right? And you had to work hard and you, and you had to fiscally be rewarded for that. And then you had to buy all the... And show it. And show it, show and it all the, the thing, all the yeah. success was about you know the clothes and the gear and the phone and the you know and the car yeah. and all that stuff and and i was part of that and i was created by that and it took me years to work out that you know it took me well i'll tell you what it took me it took me a modicum of success to before mm. because i because then we made lock stock and you know and it was a, you know we we're making a we're getting paid a couple of grand and we were making a film with Vinnie Jones. It was the bottom of the barrel. You know, we didn't know that it was going to turn into what it turned yeah. into. I would just do, like I said, if I had the fuck off money was gone, I'd go to work. And that's what I did. And uh, it turned into something. But once I got that success and respect, which came out of nothing more than the fact that the film was popular and people liked it, it didn't mean I was better at what I did. It didn't mean that I was, you know, in any way more talented than the next person. It was just that that was a success. And that's what we, um, judged our lives on and uh that was interesting it's a really interesting it, until you've got it you can't then realize that it doesn't matter that sort of pressure that you feel under to compete or to yeah. demonstrate to people that you're of value and that you're doing well now we get into this conversation it's like we've got to a place in our lives i'm 54 years old and i realized that job title and income that is all i cared about right mm. and now i realize that like i just said you know about 
you know, how much time do I have? And do I enjoy what I do? And all of those things. It seems like those are a luxury because like, you know, for some listeners to this, it's like, get fucked, you know, with your organic fucking bread. All <laughs> we're trying to do is pay the rent, make sure we don't go under and make mm. sure we don't get nicked for our credit card bills. I get that. I understand that I'm in a, a fortunate place, but but every single job is like, I mean, you know, every job is, is a form of like, it's, should I put it on red or should I put it on black? And I, I guess the most explicit version of that is banking. You know, it's like, it's just a mm. sort of posher way of, of playing roulette. You know what I mean? It's like entrepreneurs, bankers, all of that stuff is just about gambling. And, if you do it, if you, if you know, if you're a dentist, you're doing something practical, you're helping someone's tooth not hurt, and then they're fiscally reimbursing you for doing that. And that's a proper gig. That's a job. It's what people do. And it just seems that, you know, during those years with Thatcher and all that time, there was no worth to that, you know, and, and, and now I think we're learning more that there is a worth to doing a day's graft and actually creating something you know I'm, i'd never call myself an artist but you know a painter's an artist a painter paints a painting whether you like it or not it's irrelevant but it's there it's art you know that's incredible you know and that and that, you know people will hate me for saying this but it's the same with acting like all those you know i grew up wanting to do big movies in hollywood you know that's mm. just because that was my dream i was a kid mm. who wanted to act and you know so when you do those films like x-men first class and you're in you know you're literally in the studios in los angeles and you're in the four seasons and blah, 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 blah. And it's all amazing. But the fact is you've got like three lines a week and you're just standing there and you're making a <laughs> shitload of dough. And that's a champagne problem. And every actor in the world who listens to this will go, my heart bleeds for you, Jace. But the truth <laughs> is I was deeply unhappy. I was yeah. away from my family for five months. I had no, like, art, no pleasure artistically. I was just completely stunted and the whole status and, politics of all that stuff we're very very oppressive and very scary basically so i'm glad that hollywood turned its back on me and i'm now making crappy movies in south london <laughs> yes <laughs> i've got really got to learn and i am at 54 i'm trying and you know to the guys that are listening to this it's that fear of i mean you know i don't i don't want to go and sit in a bath with candles for 45 minutes that would yeah. terrify me but i would you know i try i put in my diary on your you know on your phone you've got the little diary and i go it's too late this week because I'm blocked up and busy all week doing nonsense that will never come to anything. But next Tuesday, I've got nothing and I put keep free. And I go, keep free, just keep free. And then when someone goes, Chase, can you come and talk to this um, group about um, this um, Czechoslovakian film from 1933? And I go, no, I can't because I'm busy on Tuesday. Yeah. Freeze there, keep free, keep it free. Keep it free. Really And then Tuesday comes and... You know whether I've used it for something else or not. The fact is, you've got you've got to find space for yourself because yeah. uh, you drive yourself mad otherwise. Go for a bloody you know, walk. You and you're right. I mean, God Almighty, scheduling in that time and then sticking to that schedule if you can. And again, yeah. I understand that not everyone can. I mean, my mum is an amazing person and is very supportive with me. But I can tell sometimes because she raised four sons on her own. Right. And it was like either working or worrying about bills and didn't have a second in the day. You can tell that sometimes she's she's so understand she's ne like not critical of me at all. But you can tell sometimes she just has to like bite her tongue. So yeah. I'm going, oh, mom, I mean, the thing is, like, I really need like a few hours in the week just to like go for a walk in the park and get away from the kids and just have to have a, I can tell her that's she's just looking at me thinking, oh, fucking hell, that's nice for you. <laughs> 
I know. Even when I tell, even when I tell her about, so I, I said to my mum was a single parent, you know, mm. and she brought us up basically, but she brought me and my brother up on her own, heroically, brilliantly. Fuck knows how she did it. I have no clue how she did it. She had no dough at all. And she used to do this thing where mum would work. She was a secretary during the day and was, you know, chased around the office by some lechy guy mm. at Otis Lifts where she was trying to take shorthand off this guy. She didn't <laughs> know shorthand. She used to just write it really quickly and then try and decipher it at night <laughs> with my big brother, who was like the dad of the family at 13. Yeah. Had to make all the big decisions and it all had to be kept away from Jason, who was too young to understand. And like, and then after that, she'd be, we'd be in, outside Wimbledon Dog Track. There was this caravan and she used to sell winkles and, and prawns out of it. And I'd be oh, wow. And she had to wear this prawn on her head, right? Oh, my God. And they'd all be going, hey, fishy funny, can I have a wee bit of this and that? And, oh, yeah, and yeah. I'd be going, and I'd be just sitting on the floor doing my homework going, take it off, mum. Take the prawn <laughs> off your head. And what she had to do, I cannot even begin yeah. to imagine how she, hard she must have worked and how, you know, her and my big brother kept all this stuff away from me but so now when i go so mum, yeah i'm going into the prisons and i'm seeing these guys she goes what are you doing that for like, <laughs> well, because you know mum, they're like well you know i said they need the love you know i mean it's like they're the most they're the, they're the most under under supported group well there's a reason for that jason they're oh, in yeah. bloody prison and i'm like oh, it's really hard because she's so brutal and i yeah. get it i get it yeah, yeah. I get it. no one's ever given my mum nothing she's brutal jace it's always a pleasure talking to you we should do this again. I'm sorry. I'd love to, and I'm sorry to ramble on, but um, I hope... That's, mate, that's what this is about. This is about getting under the skin of things. Um, <laughs> so it's a pleasure to, to hear you talk, and, um, you know, it's a pleasure to hear your story. And thank you so much for sharing, mate. Thanks, mate. Lots of love. Ta-da. Well, there you go. Jason Fleming, a lovely bloke. I'm sure you'll agree. Throughout all the giddy highs of his film career, he's always found that time to help out prisoners, the sort of people that most of society would usually give a big swerve to. So respect to him for that. If you want to listen to Jason's podcast, he's got loads of great guests in his archive, then go to morethanmypast.org.uk. You'll also be able to find out more about the national More Than My Past campaign. And remember also to subscribe to my Substack newsletter at sandelaney.substack.com. It's a little weekly article from me about life, mental health, addiction, recovery and all that jazz. I appreciate your support and I love hearing from you too. So comment on the site and I'll reply or you can tweet me at Delaney Man. Until next time, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.